so grateful for the gift of music and the opportunity that we have uh, to use it to worship God. And so thank you to those of you who've been gifted in that way for leading us and doing it skillfully. Good news this morning to share with you, and that is that God loves us. I recently read a heartbreaking story. It's a story of a girl named Michelle Sambolillo. As a young child, Michelle was abandoned by her parents and left to survive with countless other abandoned children in a cemetery in North Manila, Philippines. She eventually did end up in a poorly run state government orphanage, but she has lived her life lacking many things. She was often very hungry, even when living in the orphanage. She struggled developmentally and socially. She never had a bedroom to call her own. There were many things that we could list off that Michelle has lacked in her life. But you know what was the one thing that Michelle wanted more than anything else? Michelle said she just wanted someone to love her. Michelle had this idea, and I think that she's right. And Michelle's idea was this, that if someone would love her, her life would be changed forever. You think she's right? I think she's right. That if someone would have come along and broken through all of the red tape and all of the mess that existed and made sure that this little girl had a place to live and parents to look up to and someone to love her, that would have changed everything for her. Love is like that. Love does something for us And love does something to us. That's what we're going to talk about today as we go through Romans 5, 6 through 11. The big idea today is this, that God's love displayed in Jesus' death for us does something to us. Love does something for us and love does something to us. There's a lot of people I know that were gone last week. And we started in the book of Romans way back in January of last year. January of last year, we started in Romans 1, and we got through chapter 4 before we took a break and went to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, last week, we just got back into Romans again. We started out in Romans 1 through 4, where the theme of this whole letter, it's a letter, remember, written by Paul to Christians living in Rome, people that he's never met, but they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to them. And he wants to be sure that they're clear about what the good news is all about, or gospel. So that's what the letter is really all about. The overwhelming theme in the first four chapters, along with the gospel, is righteousness. So we're introduced to this gospel, this good news, and it is good news about God's righteousness, we're told, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And then we got this really bad news. From chapter 1, verse maybe you remember this, we were... From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, hit week in and week out with bad news. So many verses filled with the bad news. And the bad news is bad news because, yes, God is righteous, and that is good news, except for the fact that we are unrighteous. And we, as unrighteous people, are under the wrath of God. We don't experience the love of God. We experience the the wrath of God is what is coming toward us as we sit in our unrighteousness. And so this bad news we found out was really for everybody. He begins by talking about how it is 
bad news for pagan Gentiles. To which we mentioned that the Jewish religious people might have said, yes, you're right about that, Paul. That's what they deserved. And then Paul turns to them and throughout chapter 2 and into chapter 3 reminds them that they too are unrighteous. In fact, no one is righteous. No, not even one. No one does good. And so all are under the right, just wrath of God. And then we turn to chapter 3, verse 21, and we got to see some good news finally. That God had some solution because of who He is, that our righteous God did not just immediately pour out His wrath on unrighteous people like us, but that He had a plan that He would send His Son. And that His Son would be the propitiation, or the one who would absorb the wrath of the Father for our sin, who would come and die in our place. And that all who trust in Him, all who put their faith in Jesus, are then justified. The unrighteous people who now trust in Jesus are justified or declared righteous. That was the message of Romans 1 through 4. Last week we picked it up then in chapter 5, where we found uh, the big idea last week was that in addition to being justified by faith, we are also given many more gifts like peace with God, like ongoing access to His grace, and especially like hope even in the midst of suffering. That's what we looked at last week. Now this week we are looking at verses 6 through 11, where I said, like, like I said before, the big idea is this, God's love displayed in Jesus' death for us does something to us. In your bulletin, uh, we put a sermon outline, so if you uh, are helped by taking notes, um, even if you don't keep them, sometimes it's helpful to just write some stuff down, so I encourage you to do that. And then on the back, there's an application guide, because we're not people who are called to just know God's Word, but called to obey God's Word and apply it to our lives. And so it changes the way that we feel and changes the way that we think and changes what we do. And so that's why we put that application guide together as well. If you're able to, though, would you please stand as we read God's Word this morning? From Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I'm going to pray first, and then we'll read the Word of God. Father, I pray, as I've already prayed leading up to this, but I pray again now, and we pray together, that you would take from our minds any distractions that would cause us to, to be thinking about other things, that you would, you would uh, be present with us as we read your word and seek to understand it this morning, and even more as we seek to apply it. May the truth of your word penetrate deep into our hearts and our minds, changing us, changing who we are and changing what we desire to do. You have the power to do that, and I pray that you would for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read the Word of God from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. God's Word says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved 
by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You can be seated. Praise God for His Word. We're going to begin, before we go through as we normally do, going through this passage verse by verse, as I was studying it, I I was noticing these things that Paul is pointing out. Remember that Paul is writing to Christians living in Rome. And I noticed how many words that he uses in the past tense to describe who they used to be. Before we can get a real good understanding and picture of God's great love for us, it's helpful for us to understand who we were before we came to experience God's love in Christ. And so Paul reminds them, and we here as well, here's who we were before God's work in Christ took place. And so let's just look at those really quickly before we start going through it verse by verse. We're going to see those things in verse 6, 8, and 10. Okay, And the first two things that we see about who we once were are in verse 6. You notice that in verse 6. Remember, he's writing to Christians saying, this is where you used to be. You used to be, he says, weak and ungodly. Weak and ungodly. That's who you used to be. And weak could be translated vulnerable or helpless. Saying that's what you used to be. You didn't become who you are because you are somehow stronger than other people. We like to, we like to praise people for their strength. Oftentimes say, wow, they're so strong. That's how you're going to get through this tough time because you're so strong. We're here. Paul is saying, before you were in Christ, the reality is that you were weak, vulnerable, and helpless like an abandoned child in a cemetery. What are you going to do for yourself? That's where you were. And not only that, you were also ungodly. Ungodly could also be translated irreverent. It's the kind of attitude that says, whatever, God, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's that kind of attitude, that, 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 that sense that I don't really have any sense of awe of God. Like we just sang that song, I'm in awe of you. People are just like, I'm not in awe of God. I got a better explanation for all sorts of things other than your God. And so God is not someone that I'm in awe of. And so I'm going to live however I want to live. That's ungodly, right? That's what that means. This is who we were before we were in Christ. Verse 8 tells us another thing about who we were, and that is sinners, right? Sinners are those who regularly fail to be and do what God requires. Right? That's, that's a simple definition of what it is to be a sinner. And then verse 10 says, we were enemies. Enemies of God. We were people opposed to God. It's not just that our whatever attitude towards God was like this neutral position. You're either for God or you're against God. Right? And so, so he talks about us. That's the only spot in Scripture. Other spots in Scripture talk about us 
before coming to faith in Christ, we are enemies of God because He is righteous and we are unrighteous. We are opposed to Him. We exchange the glory of God for all sorts of other things. Our sin is not just against other people. Our sin is ultimately against Him. And so we are called enemies. This is who we were. If you want to hear some really bad news, some really bad news is this is true, just as true as it was for them in Rome. This is true for us. That before trusting in Christ, and some of you might be here today in this situation, that your attitude toward God might be, listen, (laughs) it's not that bad. I showed up at church on Sunday morning, right? So I'm not an enemy of God. I came here, and I could have been sleeping or eating breakfast right now. Right? But unless you have repented of sin and trusted in Christ, the reality is that these things speak of you not in the past tense, but in the present tense. That unless you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you too are weak, ungodly, sinful, and an enemy of God. Is this where you're at right now? If so, I would plead with you to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And those of you who have done that, you are people who trust in Jesus and regularly repent of your sin and trust in Him as you fall, that you again trust in Him. If that's you... I need to ask you this, do we really care about the millions living like that? I told you maybe a bit of Michelle's story, and as I told you, Michelle's story being abandoned, and you're like, oh, I wish our hearts grieve. We long for somebody to just go and love that girl. There's a whole lot of people in this world who need to know that there's a God who loves them. They need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you tell them? We think about how bad this really is. I mean, imagine somebody weak, vulnerable, helpless, sinful, an enemy of God, living an ungodly life on a path headed towards eternal destruction and punishment. And we have to ask the question, can love do anything to change that? And of course, the answer is yes, it can. And so that's what we're going to look at as we look at this passage today. So let's go back and let's look at verses first verses 6 through 8 where the the big idea is this love does something for us verses 6 through 8 will tell us how God loved us let's look at verses 6 through 8 you know you might tell people and we hear that kind of thing all the time that people share this message which sounds like good news God loves you and it's true but for many people They might hear something like that, and they might wonder, well, how? Or they might wonder, well, it sure doesn't look like that to me right now. Look at my life. Look at the mess that I'm in. And you're telling me that God loves me, and that's good news? Am I supposed to just take your word for it? People might wonder. Well, we can tell them, no, you don't have to take my word for it. There's actually a historical event that took place that proves and demonstrates God's love for us. Let me point you to that, right? And so verse 6 tells us of how Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Aren't you grateful that, that when we were weak and vulnerable, it's not like we could do something, not like God was like, hey, I will love you if you meet me halfway. Or, or not even like, I'll do 75% and you do 25%. you got to do something and then I will pursue you with my love. No, we have a God who when we were, the Bible says, dead in sin, well, we were weak and ungodly, opposed to God in every way, that that is when Christ died for us. That He is a God who pursues us. Praise God for that. Christ died for the ungodly. And He died and He loves us in a way that we aren't prone to love. Paul just takes a little break from talking about that and says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. It's hard to understand God's love for us because we don't love like that. Right? That's the reality, that we don't love like God loves. I mean, we, we might understand love like we love people who love us, but if somebody is opposed to us, like they're, they're opposed to us, we don't seek to go out of our way to demonstrate our love for them, making personal sacrifice in order to love somebody who is opposed to us. That's not natural for us. Right? But praise be to God that He's not like us. Some of my favorite words, my favorite phrases in all of Scripture are two words. You know what it is? The first words of verse 8. But God. That's always there to like draw out this contrast. Because He's talking about what we're like. Well, here's what we're like. We don't want to die for somebody who doesn't like us but God but God aren't those beautiful words God's not like us but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us your translation might say God demonstrates or God proves both of those are good translations this one says God shows his love for us God's not a God who just says, I love you, like it's some principle that we're just supposed to believe, but He demonstrates, He proves, and He shows His love for us. And how does He do that? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know God loves us. You know, some people, and this might be you even today, doubt God's love. You look at the circumstances of your own life or the circumstances of the lives of people around you and you see all of the heartache and hurt and pain in our world and you wonder, how can God be a loving God? I don't know how to explain all those things. I don't. But I do know that the way that we know, the way that we can know that God loves us is not by looking at the circumstances of our life on that day, or what, are, what the news headlines are that day. That's not how we know that God loves us. How do we know that God loves us? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can point back to a real event that happened in history and say, this is how I know, without a doubt, that God loves us because Christ died for us. That's good news. God's love does something for us. Right? God's love does something for us. 
God doesn't just say, I love you. He proves, He demonstrates, He shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. Now let's look at the next couple of verses. Verses 9 and 10. I said that not only does love do something for us, Christ died for us, love also does something to us. It changes us in some way. Actually, a couple of things. It changes who we are. We're going to talk about that first. And it changes what we do. We're going to talk about that next. Love does something to us. It changes who we are, and it changes what we do. Remember Michelle from the beginning of the sermon. She had this belief that if someone would just reach out and adopt her, take her in, which, by the way, never did happen. She got too old, and the paperwork took too long, and so she is still living as an orphan, unable to be adopted at this point. But she believed that if someone would have reached out to adopt her and love her, that would have changed who she was. Not just an abandoned child living in some orphanage, but a part of a family with a last name and a bed to go to at night that was her own. It would have changed her. God's love for us demonstrated in Jesus' death changes who we are. How does it do that? Let's look at verses 9 and 10. First of all, one truth that we've already seen over and over again, that we're justified. That's part of how God's love changes who we are. Verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. How are we justified? Not because we justified ourselves, not because we cleaned ourselves up and got a lot better, but we were justified by the blood of Jesus, by the work that He's done. Remember that justified just means being declared righteous. Our problem was we are unrighteous, but God in His grace and because of His great love for us sent His Son to die for us so that He takes on our sin and that He gives us His righteousness. Now we are able to come before God, to stand before the throne of God on the day of judgment and be called pure and blameless. Not because we are pure and blameless, but because Christ is pure and blameless and we have been justified through faith in Him by His blood. God's love for us changes who we are. We're justified and we're being saved. We're being saved. Verse 9 says this, Since therefore we've been now justified by His blood, listen, much more shall we be saved. Now, what are we going to be saved from? If you're saved, that means you're rescued, you're taken out of the situation that you were in, and you're put in a much better situation. That's what it is to be saved. What are we saved from? Well, it doesn't say in this verse that we're saved from ourselves or saved from living a life without purpose or saved from the mess. We're saved from the wrath of God. Do you read that? Do you read that in verse 9? Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. This is real. Not just something that people make up to scare people. It's real. Part of God's great love and God's righteousness is He can't look upon sin and just shrug His shoulders like it's okay. He can't look upon evil and and, and not do anything about it. God is angry. God is wrathful toward sin and evil. And we're glad that He is. 
But the scary news is that for those who don't trust in Christ, here's what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, talking about a day that is coming. Here's what it says. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's real. We need to be saved from it. Verse 10 also talks about being saved, this time being saved by His life. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The other thing that it does to change us, God's love justifies us, saves us, and reconciles us. We see that in verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So reconciliation, what what is reconciliation? Three times we're told in those two verses that we've been reconciled, we are now reconciled. What is reconciliation? What does it mean? Why is that good news? Well, reconciliation is the, the, the fact of taking somebody who was once an enemy, a relationship characterized by opposition, to a relationship characterized by friendship. Sometimes we talk about like um, that, that, that people don't have a relationship with God, and then they recognize they need a relationship. Everybody has a relationship with God. It's either one of enmity or one of friendship. Right? And so the, so the change isn't we didn't have a relationship and now we have a relationship. The change is we were once enemies of God and now through faith in Christ and the work that He has done, we are friends of God. We were once forsaken and, and, and now we're forgiven. Right? We were once condemned and now we're accepted. That relationship with God has significantly changed because God has demonstrated His love for us in that Christ died for us. So that we who were once enemies of God are now friends of God. So, love does something to change us. It does something to change who we are and it does something to change what we do. So here's where we've looked so far. Before we get into this final little point, I just want to be sure we get this. That love does something to us. It changes who we are. We who were weak, ungodly sinners who were enemies of God are now justified, saved, and reconciled friends of God. Amazing grace, isn't it? It changes who we are. But it also changes what we do. And we need to be sure that we get that order right. Okay? That that first it changes who we are, and then it changes what we do. If we get that order mixed up, we start to think that we have to do something to save ourselves. Right? So our new identity comes first, and then new activity flows out of that. Does that make sense? Illustration quick. So um, this last week, I had to put air in our tire. Right? That was an activity that I engaged in. I put air in my tire. Me putting air in my tire did not make me a car mechanic. Right? I didn't, like, become a car mechanic because I put air in my tire. 
However, if I was a car mechanic, one of the activities that I would engage in at times is putting air in a tire, right? So our identity precedes our activity. That, that God's love for us demonstrated in Christ's death for us changes who we are, and that changes what we do, right? So we don't become justified or saved or reconciled to God by doing something. But if we are justified, saved, and reconciled to God, then we do something. Does that make sense? So the order is pretty important. Love does something for us, and it does something to us, first changing who we are, and then changing what we do. So, what is that? What do we do? In light of this glorious reality that God, the God who is righteous and holy, who has created all things, that He has shown His love to us who were undeserving enemies of Him by sending His Son to die for us, changing us from what we were, which was not good, to something incredible. What do we do? How does that reality change what we do? Well, verse 11 tells us this. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, I can think of a lot of different things that he could have put after this. Okay, in light of the fact that God has done this for you, you have experienced God's love, and you are now a new person. Here's what you ought to do. And there's many places in Scripture that tell us many things that we ought to do in light of the fact that God saved us. But here, right after he shares this glorious truth, you know what he tells us to do? One simple thing. Here's what we do now. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of what characterizes those who have trusted in Christ. And if you have no desire to rejoice in God, then you need to look back and wonder, I think, if you have been changed by God, if your identity has been changed by God, if you are someone who's been justified, saved, reconciled to God. Because we who have experienced that work of God in us, that we've been justified, saved, reconciled, it is our desire increasingly our desire that we would spend our lives rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoicing means that's where we find joy. That, that we find joy as we open up the Word of God and read it for ourselves and encounter Him in that way. That we go out and we see what God has created. The, the beautiful prairies of Iowa. And, and we are in all, we, we think of the fact that something just grew in our garden. I was just talking with somebody about that before the word. Like, that, that we're in awe of all that God has done. Right? That we rejoice in Him. We, we get a potato out of the ground and we rejoice in God because He's the one that made the potato grow. Right? We recognize who we once were and who we are now and we rejoice. So we long to, we're just like, well, I suppose I should go to church because it's Sunday, I suppose we should be in a life group again. I, like all that, like, no, we des- it's our desire now that we would grow in our understanding of how God loves us, that we could spend our lives rejoicing in Him, that we would gladly sing songs and speak words and have the meditations of our heart be fixed on who He is and being in awe of Him. 
There's one song, we sang it a couple weeks ago, and, and we'll probably sing it again sometime soon. We're not going to sing it today. But one song that's probably in the top three of my favorite songs um, that, that, that really follows the flow of this passage in that song. I'm just going to, I'm not going to sing it for you. Everyone's like, oh, good, he's going to sing. I'm not singing. Uh, but the, the words um, speak, first of all, the first two verses are about how love changes who we are. And then the last verse is about how love changes what we do. And when I, this is one of the ways that I rejoice in God. Do you rejoice in God through song? Do you sing loud even if you can't sing well? Uh, when we're gathered together or when you're in your car or wherever you are. This is one of those songs that just does the goosebumps thing, and I just like, this This is my God. This is all I need. If, if everything else crumbles, this This is all I need. It's this, these words. Speaking about once who we once were. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. This is who I once was. Hard to sing those words, but it's good because I know what comes next. But as I was running my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to where? The cross where I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath deserved for me, and now all I know is grace. And in the chorus, you just bust out saying, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus. That's rejoicing in God, recognizing this is who I once was. This is where I was headed until you took me to the cross, and I there beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath deserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And that changes then what we do. The last verse of the song goes like this. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. That that's us. That, that's my desire, and I hope that's your desire, that we would, recognizing all that God has done for us, be motivated to speak those words, to sing those songs, to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we, who have been changed by God's love, spend our lives gladly rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, that is a glorious truth to behold. And I thank you for the opportunity that we have as we focus on that each Sunday when we gather together. There's lots of stuff. We could give some helpful tips on how to do life better. But God, I thank you that this, this body of believers gathers around to once again hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have a God who loves us. What a joy it is 
And God, it's my desire, as it is your desire, that those who have yet to repent of sin and trust in Christ, maybe they came because they're okay with God, not recognizing that without repenting and trusting in Christ, they are weak, only, weak ungodly, sinful enemies of God. I pray that your Spirit would be at work in their hearts even right now, that they might turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Give them the courage to talk to somebody about that. And God, for all of us who do trust in Christ, I pray that you would help our hearts to break for those who do not yet know Him, who are not spending their lives rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have, I pray that we would gladly spend our lives rejoicing in You. You are a God who is worthy. And so we sing praise to You. We want to live in obedience to You, not because we think that it's going to earn Your favor. We know that we don't deserve Your favor, but it's been given to us through faith in Christ, through what He has done. So God, we gladly rejoice in You. In Jesus' name, Amen.